Let's turn to Luke's gospel, chapter 22, as we continue our study through the gospel of Luke. We're coming to the last remaining hours of Jesus's life now at this point. And I have a, a, a study today entitled, The Time is at Hand. And the time is at hand in our, in our study with, with Jesus where he's at. And I'm also recognizing, look, the time is at hand in my own personal life and our lives here today. That we are awaiting the return of Jesus. That it's time to get serious about our walk if we're not already. And our time is short. You know, yesterday I, I was blessed to be a part of a, a men's menudo at Calvary Chapel City Terrace. And it was a, a blessing to hear this pastor teach uh, just the wisdom that he had. And, and I was really encouraged. He, he taught on the parable of the minas, of how we're all given that one mina, that, that might. And what are we going to do with it? And, you know, one thing that really encouraged me about this man was first he started to talk, before he started the study, he started to talk to me about him and his wife doing ministry together. For so many years, he had been walking with the Lord. Uh, I think he said since 57, he became a Christian when he was 14 years old. And then he, he eventually met his wife at Moody College uh, Bible Institute. And then they were doing ministry all these years, all this years of ministry. You guys could do the math in your head. <laughs> and then he shared with me uh, that in 2019, the Lord took his wife uh, home. And at, at, right after he shared that, he started to share with me of all the things that God is doing in his life today, of, of the ministry and the, the gifts and the call that he has now in this season of his life. And as he's speaking to me, he has so much joy. And I could, I could sense the, the depth of, of man, that loss of, of this man's wife. And yet at the same time, the, the joy that he had in the Lord. And I realized that, man, life is short. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even up there yet in age. And, and I'm thinking, man, for him, I'm sure it's even more so that he realizes that it just was a blink of an eye. And now he knows he's at his last run, really. And he, he shared with us that he has cancer in his stomach. And when he found out, this was after his wife passed away, he found out, he said he wasn't worried at all which is amazing. And secondly, he said that he told the Lord, okay, Lord, I thank you now for every opportunity that you're going to give me to share with these people who I would never go meet because he's now, which I'm, it, which it, what it sounded like, he didn't say it, but I'm, I'm assuming that he's getting chemotherapy. It sounded like uh, the nurses, uh, as they're hooking him up, he, he started to share with us his accounts of sharing the gospel with them gospel message every nurse that he has and he related that to how paul who paul is, is is shackled to these guards in rome and paul said look i'm not in chains to rome i i'm chained to jesus christ and he saw every opportunity in his trial to to witness then to these guards and there were guards who were who were getting saved because of his ministry in the prison it's amazing so i i see that with all this one of the things that the Lord is encouraging me in is to take the opportunity that God has given us here. He's given us his love, his Holy Spirit, salvation and, and gifts. What are we going to do with these things? Now in chapter 22, let's kick off with reading half of the chapter today. It is 71 verses. So we're going to read up until... I say so. <laughs> Verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. 
So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he said and said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. We'll stop there for now. So the time is at hand. It says when they sat down, I like that, that phrase right there in verse 14, when the hour had come. And you've heard me say this before that Throughout Jesus' life, you see him. People are approaching him. His mother first approaches him and, and says, Jesus, do something at this wedding. Do, perform a miracle. Do something. And he looks at her and says, woman, my time is not at hand. It's not my hour. And then later on throughout Jesus' life ministry, you'll see the people, the multitudes come to him and say, is it now the time, Jesus, when you're going to ascend, that you're going to do something? And he's like, my time is not at hand. It's not yet. And then as you see him get closer, he's like, my time is near. And now the time is at hand. This is now at the, the time of the Passover, which God sovereignly lined it up that the Jews would be celebrating their Passover feast. That's why in verse one, it says, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Do you guys remember the original Passover? Where that's from? The book of Exodus. Yes, yes, I see a head nods. Moses preparing the Israelites to leave Egypt. They were enslaved in bondage to Egypt. And the original Passover, when they celebrated it, the first time it was commemorating from God his command for Moses to slay a lamb. He was to go before and slay the lamb, and they would take that lamb's blood, and they would mark the doorposts of the Israeli families. And it was a step of faith. Because what is animal blood going to do unless God is behind it, right? So they put the blood on the doorposts, and then the destroyer that night passed over Egypt and passed over the Israelites. And those who did not have the blood on their doorpost, they were killed. All the firstborn was killed. But those who had the blood of the lamb, and in the shape of the cross, if you notice, they were spared. And this, that original account, it was a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing, you know, of the things to come. You see, the, the symbolism right there is that men and women were enslaved to sin. 
instead of being enslaved to Egypt. They were enslaved to sin. But sin led to death and the curse of hell. And death, as a destroyer, it swallows men and women. So they needed atonement, which is what we need in our life. We know that's Jesus. And now, somewhere a little bit less than 1,500 years after the time of Moses, about 1,500 years later, Jesus, the Messiah, comes to his own people, and many of them rejected him. What's interesting about atonement in the Old Testament you see, they would, they would take this lamb, they, they'd raise it, and then on the proper day, they would kill that lamb. They would pass on in faith their sins to that lamb. And the blood, it provided atonement for a person. Does anyone know in the Old Testament what the word atonement means? They say, well, what? Covering. In the Old Testament, atonement means a covering. It was to cover the people's sins, the saints' sins. But in the New Testament, it has a different meaning. In the New Testament, the word atonement, it means exchange. It's Jesus exchanging his righteousness for our sins. And that's a beautiful thing in our life. And I, that's one of the gifts that God has given us is atonement. Continuing in verse 2, it says, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So now this is the, the antagonists right here of our account. The chief priests and the scribes, they're now planning and plotting how they're going to kill Jesus, which leads me to my first point of my Bible study this morning. Point number one, where God is moving, Satan attacks. Do you guys ever feel like as you draw closer to the Lord, that suddenly all these problems and, and issues and spiritual warfare start to arrive and rise even sometimes more so than when, you're, than when you were just cruising in the world. What's interesting about the account of, of these scribes and Pharisees, they were the most knowledgeable in their religion and they were missing the whole idea of what atonement was. They were missing the whole point of Jesus himself being the Messiah coming to save people. And they thought, one of the, the, the leaders of the Pharisees, Caiaphas, said it is better, because they feared Rome, it is better that instead of Rome wiping out the Israeli people for following Jesus, it would be better that one man die for the sins, or that one might die for the nation rather than the nation perish. And he, what, he didn't even realize that God was speaking prophetically through him, that Jesus would die for all, the entire world. And I'm imagining that these scribes and these Pharisees, now they're plotting, they're meditating on how they're going to murder Jesus. That's a dark thing. To meditate, there, there's even, in our court of law, there's a difference between just accidental murder and premeditated murder. These scribes and Pharisees are premeditating on how they're going to be able to take Jesus, pull him away from the multitudes, and silence him before Rome. And I wonder if there were some of them who felt that darkness. I wonder if there were certain scribes and certain Pharisees who were, could feel that what we're doing is wrong. But this is how closely tied up the religious leaders were to the corrupt government system. You see, Rome, they set up their nation above Israel and above the Jewish people but they allowed for the scribes and the Pharisees, for, the, for the, the Sanhedrin to continue doing all their religious practices because they felt it wasn't an, an interference with their government. And then the, the, the Pharisees, 
especially the Sadducees, were closely related to the government of Rome. And I'm wondering, man, how corrupt were they that everything was cool and that Rome was just like, yeah, you guys keep doing what you're doing. You're not going to bother us. In verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Now, this is a dark thing right here. We have Satan himself possessing Judas, entering him. And I, I have to believe that the reason why it was Satan who entered him, it wasn't just any other demon, was because Satan knew that, all right, this job needs to get done right and correct. So sometimes if, you know, you want to make sure things get done, you do it yourself, right? Well, that's exactly the mentality that Satan had here. He possessed Judas. But Judas, his heart had already turned against Jesus. Remember, people, my loved ones, Christians cannot be possessed. So we don't need to be fearful as we're reading this. It's like, oh man, can, can Satan enter me? No. The Bible teaches that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, darkness, it cannot comprehend the light. It cannot overpower the light. So when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, Demons cannot enter a Christian. Now, we can, ex- we can experience oppression, and we can experience uh, spiritual warfare and, and demonic attack, but not possession. Continuing in verse 4, it says, So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitudes. So now Satan had already turned the religious leaders' hearts against Jesus. And now he's doing the same thing with Judas. You see, again, I'll say it again. Whenever you see a work of God, be sure that there's an attack of the enemy against it. And Satan, he likes to copy God. Because... In the same manner that oftentimes God will work on both sides of, of two people, where if, if God is sharing one thing with, let's say, for example, a, a, a girl, and then he's putting it in her heart, okay, I want you to do this, this spiritual work, and then God puts it in this other person's heart, let's say it's a, it's a guy, I want you to do this spiritual work, and then God brings them together, God's working on both ends and they both have that one mind, one heart where God is uniting them and Satan tries to copy that. So he's working with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and he's got plans and schemes to try to get Judas to also work against Jesus. Now with Judas, I'm wondering if perhaps there was times that although Satan entered him where he was partially in control. Because one thing I note in those four verses in verse five it says and they were glad and agreed to give him money and i'm like wondering well that i'm wondering we know that judas was taking money out of the collection was judas still there too at times working hand in hand with satan so now the plot from judas the betrayer to capture jesus and then in verse seven It says, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So now I I like this in a little bit more of a lighter tone. Now we're talking about Satan and the devil. But now the, the story, the account continues. By the way, if you ever hear me say account, I like we're using the word account rather than story. Because sometimes people think stories are, are fairy tales. But no, this is the account. But I, I'm, if, if I say story, then I still say story still sometimes. But he's now telling his disciples, look, the Passover is here. I'm going to send you guys, go and prepare a place that we can all get together to eat. How many of you guys uh, like administering and planning parties? Yeah, neither do I, Chris. <laughs> Uh, they're fun at times, but it can be stressful, right? Some, of, some people here, you guys have the gift of administration and you love planning parties. 
while this wasn't per se uh, a party, but it was a holiday meal that they were going to pl- take place in, and it was extremely important, especially for the Jewish religion, the Passover. So he sends Peter and John, saying, go and prepare. And now I'm wondering if when they went to uh, the man that was going to host his house for the upper room, I wonder what exactly they talked about with him, because if you guys remember in that picture with Jesus, that Leonardo da Vinci, remember that painting, Leonardo da Vinci, he painted that painting with Jesus in the center and the 12 disciples. I wonder, man, did they tell this guy like, okay, we need a table for 24. And he's like, well, well, why 24? I thought you guys were just 12 disciples. Yes, but we're all only going to sit on one side of the table. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. I would have to put the picture up so you guys could fully grasp that picture. You guys understand that. So Jesus, forgive me, he sends two. He sends John and Peter. And I'm reminded of the fact that also he sent two prior to this on Palm Sunday when he entered into Jerusalem. He sent the two. They're not named. But he sent two, hey, go and just go to this guy's house and you're going to see a a colt of a donkey. I want you to untie that colt and start taking it. And when the man says, hey, what are you guys doing with my donkey? You just tell him the master has need of it. And I'm like, man, that's got to take faith, right? Because otherwise you're looking like you're... Kind of like on those, one of those weird, like, candid camera shows with the, the impractical jokers. Like, okay, now just walk in behind the guy and say, like, well, the master needs it. Like, that takes faith, right? To think, okay, it's all going to work out. Jesus said it would. I see the application of preparation right here, though. Which leads me to my second point. Point number two. Be faithfully prepared. You see, not only does God prepare you, but he calls you also to prepare. So is it God who's doing the work or is it you? It's a partnership. The answer is yes. It's both. Yeah, you're doing the work, but God is also doing the work through you. And he prepares you in these areas of your life. Think about your marriage, your, your work, your school, your ministries. In every single one of those areas that we try to grow in and excel in and, and succeed in, there's preparation for those, right? Before we, we were married, we first began in, in courtship and, in, and becoming engaged and we were learning about one another. We were preparing for marriage and then you prepare to have a family, And then you prepare for them to go to school and you prepare your children so that they can grow up to be successful, halfway not crazy adults. But there's preparation that needs to be done there. Well, what about when Jesus comes to account for all these areas of our life, our work, how we represent him? He's going to ask, hey, how did, how did you do, what did you do with the gifts and the talents that I gave you? What did you do with the family I gave you? What did you do with the job that I gave you? The position there, the men and women who came alongside you during your workforce, did you represent me to them? In school, all these areas of life, we're going to have to give an account for them. So then in verse 9, So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? Now asking God where and how to go do something is appropriate. I believe it's a good thing to do. I think we should do it as often as possible. God, how do you want me to handle this situation? But there's going to come times when God's just going to say, go. And you're like, okay, where do I go? He just says, go. Like, I don't know where to go. He told that to Abraham. He said, leave your family and go to a place I'm going to show you. And he didn't even tell him where he was going to go. He just said, leave. So Abraham goes in faith. And sometimes we're going to have that in our life. And you're not sure, do I go left? Do I go right? And if it's not sin, maybe the Lord's just putting it on your heart. Just go, and I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. 
In verse 10, And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. Now, this is faith. Like I said, this isn't just an a episode of impractical jokers. This is faith. They're going to go out there and say, okay, let's do a, a practical step of faith. Jesus told us to do something, let's do it. But steps of faith are not always practical. In fact, how much faith does it take to do something that's practical? Very little faith to do something that's practical, right? The things that we see happen every day. You know, it takes actually faith to get in your car to come here, but that's a very small amount of faith. Because we're so used to putting our seatbelt on. We're so used to our cars driving over here without breaking down on us. But then the moment something, the check engine light comes on, you get a, a flat tire, you're, you're running late, and all of a sudden you're stressed out. Start yelling at, at like the people and everything that's going on that could cause chaos now. Now our faith just disappears. Like as if God didn't know that those trials in your life were going to come. See, there's times in our life when he, God, he removes all the practical steps of faith or the practical steps in order so that you can take a big step of faith. At first he starts with the small steps, but then he prepares you. Okay, now I want you to trust me on this big one. I love it in my life when God allows me to come to a place like he has now where I don't have power to do anything in it. Because sometimes I'm doing things on my own strength and what I see that, what I believe that is right. But there's times in my life, for example, you guys heard me talk about it with Israel. You know, like, I'm now put in a situation where I'm just praying, Lord, open a door. And there's nothing I could really, there's little things I could do here and there. But for the most part, I'm, I'm in the Lord's hands. And sometimes God has to take you to that moment like Moses at the Red Sea. You got the Egyptians on your back coming to kill you and all the Israelites to enslave them again. You turn around and you see a giant ocean and there's nowhere to go. But God, right? First he slows the Egyptians down with the, the pillar of fire and then he parts the Red Sea. He even at a point tells Moses, Moses, stop praying and move. Go forward into the sea. And he, Moses is like, okay, let's go. We're going to go. So there's a time too when you need to pick up and move. You have to move in faith. And that's what the point is, the preparation for steps of faith. You know, sometimes we're trying to run ahead of God and just trying to do these great things because we, we feel that's what's important. That's what God wants me to do. But God sometimes, he's like, hey, let's work on step A first. And then we'll get to the next one. In verse 13, so they went and found it just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. So this is now faith being answered. They went, they met the guy. He was like, yeah, here's the room. Here's the table with 24 chairs on it. You guys could sit on this side. And now they're going to remember that Jesus' words don't fail. If he says that something is going to be, then it's going to be. Remember last week we, we saw how Jesus says, my words never fail. That the heaven and earth are going to pass away one day. But my words never fail, Jesus says. And there's been times in my life where I thought the Lord spoke. Like, Lord, I thought you were speaking and you were going to do this and that. And that was when I learned, okay, that wasn't God's voice because it didn't come to pass. So again, God had to teach me discernment on what was my voice, my head, versus what was God's voice speaking. In verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down 
and the 12 apostles with him. So now they're about to partake of this Passover meal. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So now they're finally doing it. They're taking part of this Passover meal and Jesus is saying that with such a strong desire, he's wanted to sit down with them for this meal because he was gonna want them to remember this particular meal for the rest of their lives. And not only that, he was gonna want the disciples then to share it with the entire world so that all believers would remember this particular Passover meal for the rest of our life. It was something that we are to do in remembrance forever. And he said in verse 18 that he wasn't going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What was he talking about right there? Well, if you study the book of Revelation... The book of Revelation talks about this amazing, great supper of the lamb and the bride coming together in heaven during the great tribulation as the believers are raptured up into heaven. We're going to have an amazing marriage supper of the lamb. And I think they serve In-N-Out Burger at this supper from what I've heard. But in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, I want to share with you guys. It's up here on the screens also if you want to follow along on the screens. John writes, he says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice And give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what we want to be a part of. That's amazing. And we are a part of that when we are in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I look forward to that. That one day we're going to be unified the same way that God symbolically gave a bride and a groom to be unified on their wedding. We're going to have that union spiritually, literally, mentally, emotionally with Jesus, the God-man, our Savior, You have the lamb and the church is the bride. On a side note, there's people out there who say when it referred to his wife made herself ready, it says that there is a, how do I word this? There's a heavenly mother in heaven, which is false. Don't ever believe that there is a female counterpart to God. There is not. Uh, That is uh, a cult teaching that we need to make sure that we do not partake of that doctrine. The church is the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. In verse 19, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this, in remembrance of me. So now as Jesus, he knows what he's going to endure. He takes bread. Remember Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And now he breaks the bread. And it's symbolic. 
Jesus' body was going to be broken. We're going to go over this in depth over the next few weeks. But you know he was beat, taken into an illegal trial, put a bag on his head, and they beat him. And normally when you see a punch coming towards you, you'll try to block or dodge the punch a little bit. But when you can't see the punch coming, you take the full force of that hit. And then they would pluck his beard out. They would spit in his face and slap him. The scourging of the cat of nine tails, which it would whip onto his skin and pull off chunks of his flesh. And then they would make a crown of thorns, place it on his head. They would cause him to, to carry his cross to Golgotha, so much so that he could no longer endure the carrying of the cross. So they brought Simon to come help him. And when they took him to the cross, then they nailed him there. And then eventually, when he had given up the ghost, they would spear his body so that water and blood would f flow out. And when that literally happens, it's because the heart ruptures and explodes when there's water and blood flowing out of your chest. And we see the symbolism that Jesus died of a broken heart. Now, Jesus did not want his disciples or us here today to forget this suffering. And repetition is a great teacher. So much so that we were to remember this account often by partaking communion. And that's why communion is, is such a special thing. And that's why, you know, I encourage people, it, if someone doesn't want to take communion, you, you don't just give them the communion. We want to make sure that when someone is taking communion, they're doing it out of their own will, free will. And I do also, too, I, I love when I see some of the gentlemen getting the ladies who want communion, communion, but keep that in mind. It, it's got to be something that's a voluntarily thing. Now, what does Jesus' suffering mean to us here today? What does it mean to your life that Jesus' his body was broken? When we think of that, I'm learning the difference in my life between head knowledge and heartfelt experience. Because sometimes we can know, have the knowledge of things, of theology in our mind, but do we have that heartfelt experience? And I'll be honest with you guys and say that in my life, I don't believe that I have suffered greatly. I've been blessed. But when I think of Jesus taking on human flesh to be made to suffer, I'm reminded of his love for us. So that we can know that we have a God who can relate to us. That's Jesus. He knows what suffering is like. Which leads me to my third point. My third point today is come to Jesus in your suffering. In verse 20, it, it reads, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, we're going to talk about, about this, about suffering a little bit more. But I want to understand first what Jesus is doing when he's saying, look, this is, the new this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now, when you look up in the King James Version of the Bible, it says instead of covenant, it says testament. And that's the same, it's the same Greek word. It's the word testament as covenant, which that basically means it's a covenant is a promised agreement. There's two parties that are promising one another action. So then it's quite interesting that our Bible here is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament because we know it's the same word as saying it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now the Old Covenant, God made with man and man failed. He gave it to Abraham. He gave it to Israel, the covenants. 
and they failed at keeping their end of the bargain. They allowed idolatry to come into their life. They saw the pagan practice of taking children and putting it on a statue and lighting it on fire. And they believed that it was bringing their pagan success. So then Israel started to follow in the same practice. And they worshiped false idols of Baal and Molech. And God being a jealous God for his people, he chastened them. And the old covenant, man broke. So God in his wisdom had to make a new covenant not based on the work of man, but based on the work of Jesus, his son. That's the new covenant. And the old covenant, when you go through the Old Testament, it's all pointing to the Messiah who is going to come. And in the New Testament, which is the new covenant, based on his work, on Jesus' work, again, it's pointing to the Messiah coming back when Jesus returns. Not only for his church, but to create a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, life is in the blood, the Bible teaches. So when Jesus, he shed his blood symbolically, his life is poured out on us in that beautiful exchange of atonement. So I ask you guys, do you guys want a daily new life? Because that's what Christ offers you, is that you can have a new life daily because there's things that we need to get rid of in our life. You know, I, I, I'll, I'm going to put myself on blast here as your pastor this morning. Yesterday, I, I went to go lead worship at a men's study. And I went, and the, one of the first things that the pastor there asked was, hey, uh, and it was early in the morning. He's like, how many of you guys read your Bible this morning? And I couldn't raise my hand. I got up early. I spent time with the Lord in prayer for sure but I couldn't raise my hand. And I have a pretty, what I consider a good devotional life of every day when I wake up, I read a little bit. I, I, I'm right now, I'm in the beginning of Ezekiel. But I missed that one opportunity. And because I missed that opportunity, I wondered. I wondered if I, had missed other, if I was missing other opportunities that morning. Where yes, I, I got to play worship, but I wonder if the Lord would have led me in a different way, a different song. Who knows? But it humbled me when he said that. Was it early in the morning? Yeah. Is church early in the morning? Absolutely, church is early in the morning. Does that, does that mean because you're going to go hear a Bible study that you should neglect your personal time with Jesus yourself? What if God has someone here for you to meet, to speak with? And there's things that he wants to show you to prepare you for that conversation. You see, I want to be closer to Jesus. I want a new life with Jesus daily. I want to grow in my I want to learn new things about who Jesus is. And God, through his word, can give us revelation of who Jesus is. In verse 21, he says, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man, as it has been determined, goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So now here, sometimes I'm wondering if Judas and Satan thought they were going to pull a fast one on Jesus. But in reality, their whole plan was counterintuitive. Because Satan and Jesus, Judas, their plot, it would end up be being used for God's glory because God works all things together for good for those who love God. And we often question God, don't we? We say, God, why are you allowing this suffering in my life? God, why would you take this person away from me in my life? Why would you allow this illness, this trial, this sickness, this lack of finances, jobs, and, and all the worries that we have and we wonder, God, where, you, where are you in my suffering? 
Where are you when I'm going through a time of struggle and we begin to question God's faithfulness? A few weeks ago, I myself was asking God the same question. I'm going to get real transparent with you guys for, for a moment here, church. About two, three weeks ago, I had my first panic attack. I've never had a panic attack. In fact, I was pretty prideful in my relaxed and easy way of life, as far as my mental way of life. Of stress and worry, come what may, I got the Lord. I don't need to stress out. I don't need to worry about anything. God's got me. And I know if God allows me to go through things, it's his will, and what he does is better than what I want to do. So, and that was my, my, you know, my take on life. It was good. It was proper. But one day in particular, it, all the, the things that I was doing to my body as far as working late hour shifts, 12 hour shifts, and having a, basically two different schedules that are very busy, drinking a lot of caffeine, something happened to my mind and my brain. Some little chemical just decided to say, hey, we're just going to fill Salvador's mind up with adrenaline maybe or whatever it was that was going on. And I can't even pin it on one particular trial in my life that caused me to have a panic attack because it wasn't one thing. In fact, things were, my wife and I got a house. We were blessed. We're going to Israel soon. It was like, man, this is a great time in my life. I didn't know why. Suddenly, one night as I came home from work, I just felt like, hot and stressed and, and worried and overwhelmed to the point where I felt like I was coming off of like a weird drug or something. And I was like, what's going on right now? And I also too, on top of it, I, I got sick two days before, like with a, a, a small cold. So I was trying to take medicine for that. So my body was a little bit out of whack. But then I, I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night all of a sudden because it was just felt like hot and I, I was super overwhelmed and worried. And as I tried to begin to read my Bible, I said, okay, I can't sleep. Let me try to meet, read my Bible. As I tried to read my Bible, suddenly I became so frightened because I couldn't read. I couldn't understand what the English language was saying anymore to me. And that was where I got scared. Because I couldn't comprehend even trying to express to my wife what I was going through. There was no way for the words to, to make sense in my head of trying to tell her that I was having a panic attack anymore. So now it was, it was a, a depth of panic that I've never experienced in my life and a depth of misunderstanding in my mind that I've never experienced. And that night... Uh, if I can't read my Bible, how am I going to hear from the Lord? And so I started to try to pray. And even my prayers were completely just thrown off by so many different thoughts. I would try to pray and then suddenly these thoughts uh, that weren't making sense were coming to my mind. Images, frightening things, all in, in one night. And, and I, was, I couldn't sleep. And in that moment, all I could do, which I, is what I did do, was... I asked Jesus, just be with me tonight. I can't read right now. It's not making sense. I couldn't approach God in a mechanical way. So I just asked Jesus to be with me in the moment. And he was. He was there. He was getting me through it. It wasn't like it just disappeared like that in the moment. I had a terrible night, and then I woke up tired the next day. I went to work. I worked a half day. And it... I couldn't even teach that Wednesday night. I studied like I was going to teach. But then I was, I was preparing to go over my notes and preparing to teach that night. I, I, I realized that they weren't making sense, my notes. And so I had a, a, a brother in the Lord of mine, Mikey Sanchez. He taught for me that Wednesday night. Thank God for him. And it lasted for that feeling started to, to get less and less as, as the days went on. And uh, I started to realize, number one, uh, that God was healing me, that it was coming back. And I, I had to get on my knees, actually, at, at 
one of my breaking points is I got on my knees and said, Lord, if you want to take the pulpit, it's your pulpit. It's your church, Lord. And, and I will, by, by all means, I will decrease that you may increase and you can do what you want to do in my life. And I know, Lord, that I'm going to be with you because you're taking me on this journey. And slowly but surely, uh, after a, one day, I felt started to feel better. Two days, even more better. And three days, and by day four, I, I was back to myself. My understanding had come back to me. But thing number one, I, I first realized that as my wife previously, when she was in nursing school, she experienced also something similar, is I used to have this mentality of just do some breathing exercises, trust in the Lord, and it's going to be all good. Just breathe. Let the oxygen in. Right? Fool. To think that the chemicals in our brain can be so weak, they're actually very strong. But secondly, I now have more compassion for people who have mental disorders, who have even life experiences that have caused them to just look at the world differently because I felt like I was looking at the world differently during that season. And I'm more compassionate towards them. And now I'm also, too, more willing to try to talk to a brother who, uh, who I meet uh, or who I've been friends with and let him know, hey, I am here for you when you're going through things and pray for you when you're going through things because that's what I needed in my life. And I, I, I had it. There were those brothers. My wife was praying over me constantly through this season. She's a, tro a trooper. And man, I am so honored to be teaching to you guys because I know that if God wants, he could take, he could move me and it would be go a good thing if he did that. If he said, nope, sell, you're not going to do this anymore. I'm going to put you over here anymore. Sometimes we think, oh man, that's so sad. But in reality, if God wants, he could remove me. So this is a gift. I realize that it's a blessing to be able to teach with you guys today. My point in all this, as I, as I shared earlier, come to Jesus in your suffering. That he is a healer. He is a provider. He does do miracles. I've seen it. And one thing I, I, I know in verse 22, he says, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. You see, Judas and Satan were not pulling a fast one on Jesus. The suffering was determined by the scriptures, by God himself. In verse 23, it says, Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. So now the disciples, as Jesus is saying, look, there's a betrayer among us. The disciples are asking one another, I'm wondering, is it I? Is it him? Who, or who is it going to be? And what I find interesting here is that to the disciples, it was not obvious that Judas was a betrayer. You see, Jesus knew who his betrayer was. And Jesus never put Judas on blast. And there's times in our life where we're, we're just thinking, we got to put people on blast. As Christians, there's justice, righteousness. But Jesus, part of loving people, is sometimes taking their claims at face value. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. I also recognize that, look, Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So we have to have discernment with people in our lives. We have to have discernment of our own thoughts, our own intentions. In verse 24, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. So a bunch of guys now are debating here, and I, you know, as guys get alpha male status, who's going to be who? And I'm sure there's even some guys who are like, hey man, if John says he wants to be the leader, I'll follow him. And then Peter probably steps in and is like, yo, John isn't even that good of a fisherman. I do it much better than him. You think he's going to be able to lead people in the Lord? No. You see, that's just a guy talk, right? They're getting angry and com 
competitive in their ministry. And people get competitive in ministry. It's something that we should not do. So that's what's going on. And then in verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Now, benefactors, just so we know, are those, those are kind of like philanthropists, someone who gives a, a lot of money or helps a person or a cause. And he's saying, look, the way the world works is they like to exercise authority over other people. And they think that what is being great is being on the top of the food chain. They think that greatness means you get the credit and recognition and that you're top dog. That's the way the world thinks. But Jesus said on the contrary in verse 26, not so among you, on the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus said, look, you guys want to be great in this life and in the next to come, become servant of all. And that's what a servant leader is. That's what ministry is. Remember when the two disciples came to Jesus and they were like, grant it to us that we'd sit on your right hand and your left. And Jesus asked them, can you guys endure the cup that I'm going to take? And they're like, yeah, we're, we can endure it. We'll, we'll take you the cup. And they had no idea that he was referring to the crucifixion, the suffering, but also knowing, Jesus knowing that they were going to be martyrs in the future said, you will indeed drink of the cup that I'm going to be baptized with. Now, point four of my study today, and we're wrapping things up here. Now it's 1230, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to See how far we get. Fourth point, be a servant. See, Jesus, he gave them the, the example of washing feet. So must we desire to make ourselves lower than those around us in humility, serving one another. And in verse 28 and 29, it says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here Jesus, now he's equating greatness with suffering. See, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. But look at what it produces. The suffering, it produces eternal rewards in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So this is our richness in Christ. And then in verse 31. And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I wonder if at this part, you've heard me say this before, if Simon Peter said to Jesus, well, you said no, Lord, right? He's asking for me, right? But you said no. Now, wheat sifting, they would ga gather the wheat with their pitchfork and they would throw it in the air and toss it and beat it all around. That's what sifting as wheat is illustrated as. That's what Satan wants to do with Peter's heart, his mind, probably even his body. Do you guys remember who said that Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Do you guys remember who wrote that? Peter wrote it. And he, when I know for a fact that as he writes that, he writes it because of his experience with what Satan did to him, sifting him like wheat. We know he's going to deny the Lord and we also know that the Lord's going to restore him. Which leads me to my last point of my study today, point number five, discern the enemy, know Jesus. Discern the enemy, but know Jesus. Because some trials that we endure are brought on, like Peter, by our own disobedience, by our
by our own foolishness, by our own lack of faith. And we don't want to give the enemy an inch in our life to allow those trials there. But there's also trials that come from being obedient before the Lord. So discern where we're at. Know Jesus. In verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. So first I recognize, look, Jesus is praying for his Peter. He prays for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. And I believe that Peter, he was genuine, but I believe he was also genuinely mistaken. That he had the zeal, but when it came to the day where they were stealing or taking Jesus away in trial, Jesus, or Peter, he, he ran by the, the campfire of the enemy and denied his Lord. But by the grace of God, there go I. Have we failed the Lord? Yes. Have we denied the Lord? Absolutely. And that's why we need his grace in our life. So in our study today, we see where God is moving, Satan attacks. We're encouraged to be faithfully prepared, that we can come to Jesus in our suffering, that we can be servants before the Lord, before our, our neighbors, to discern the enemy, but most importantly, to know Jesus. Let's pray.